if you're still finding your way. That's better. Or even if you've got it all figured out. That's better. I want to hear what you've got to say. That's better. It's Bullish with Toro. Hi. Hey, guys. Toro here with episode one of Bullish with Toro. Here I interview my older brother, Dorian Adeyemi, who's got a background in public policy and truly is one of the smartest guys that I know. He's the kind of guy you can ask, so what's the Israeli-Palestine conflict all about? And he'd say, well, in 1948, and give you names, details, and have answers to almost anything. On this episode, we're going to get into his past as a childhood nerd, to a college frat star, to his employment struggles in DC after earning a master's from Carnegie Mellon University, to his current goal of earning a law degree, inspired by everyday injustices we see as Americans, especially in the black community. Bullish by definition is being hopeful or confident that something or someone will be successful. Optimistic about the future of something or someone. So let's get bullish for Dorian Adeyemi. Here we go, and I hope you all take something from our conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bullish with Toro, where we talk about ourselves, who we are, and where we plan to go. It's a bit of practice in optimism and realism, and we're just going to see how things shake out. I'm really excited to be uh finally talking to everybody. Um, this is Toro, and I'm here today with my oldest brother. Dorian. Howdy. Dorian Adeyemi. What's good, folks? <laughs> Very nice. So you're going, we're going by Dorian, so I actually call him Demola. Um, all of us Adeyemi, Adeyemi kids have two different names, uh, American and Nigerian. And depending on, you know, how well or how long you know us, it kind of reflects what you call us. But anyway, brother... Do you know why I've asked you to do the show with me today? Not really. No. A little bit, kind of. I mean, you, you, mean, you, you fill me in a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I was learning about your podcast, which I think is an amazing idea, by the way, because I think you're pretty good in the whole communications game. Thank you. But, um, you know, I'm happy to be, I think, your first person on the show. So Yes. Okay. Yes, you are. So it's good because uh, my brother's actually leaving in like half an hour. So this is great, uh, a great kick in the ass for me to, to get this show on the road, literally. Um, so the reason why I thought that you'd be a great person to talk to is because yesterday when we were watching, uh, what was it, 90 Day Fiance, or what, <laughs> upstairs with Niji, <laughs> you mentioned that you are going to be studying for the LSAT. Yep. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I'm so happy, because how often have I told you, dear brother, that you should be in politics. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and I'm, I definitely have a, a massive interest in, in politics. Um, you know, I studied public policy in undergrad, healthcare policy in graduate school. I mean, I remember ducking out of my junior prom to watch the uh, gay marriage debate that was being debated in Massachusetts when it was the first state to legalize gay marriage. So it's something that I've always cared about. Um, I don't know how much I ever thought I'd be, like, you know, directly involved in politics in terms of, say, like running for office or anything. But I'd say when I first moved to D.C., I, I thought that my long-term goal would be working on Capitol Hill or, you know, working on a campaign or something like that. So it's definitely something I've been interested in. Love that. Before we dive into all of that, I would love for us to warm up. We know that, you know, I am into physical fitness. I'm a fitness instructor. Oh, and I... <laughs> 
want us to get our heart rate up just a little bit. I'm going to throw some quick questions at you that you have to answer as quickly as you can, as truthfully as you can, and then I will ding us out. You ready? All right. Okay, so what exercise do you want to do? I've got my weights there. We can do some jumping jacks. I'll or... do some jumping jacks. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, you're not going to have me doing some mountain steeplechases, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so go ahead and stand up. Okay. I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. And uh, just answer them. Three. Okay. You ready? <laughs> this is awesome. I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Okay, what's your astrological sign? I'm an Aries. Okay, what's your favorite food? Uh, mac and cheese. Faster jumping jacks. Your favorite TV show? Favorite TV show. Uh, okay, I'm a nerd. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Favorite book? Favorite book, I would say, is the Federalist Papers. Oh my god. <laughs> favorite smell? Favorite smell, lavender. Nice. Scale from one to ten, how much do you like me? Two and a half. Oh my god. Favorite family member? Don't answer that! You're done. It's time. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Whew. Wait, I kind of wonder what you would have said for favorite family member, but don't. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Um, oh. Awesome. Okay, so the name of this podcast is Bullish with Toro. So when you hear the word bullish, what do you think about? I would generally think of optimism. I, I normally would apply that to, like, um, say, one's view towards the market. Mm -hmm. um, if someone's bullish on something, they think that the market or some stock or some equity is going to go up. That is kind of what I figure everyone else would kind of say. Um, that or also maybe bullish, aggressive, um, blunt. Um, so when I was thinking about the name of this podcast, I was Googling the definition of bullish. And of course, you know, bullish, Toro, they go together. And one definition that I found in Merriam-Webster is hopeful or confident that something or someone will be successful. Optimistic okay. about the future of something or someone. Okay. So it's just perfect for the kind of conversations that I want to have. So let's begin. Okay. Before we talk about the future stuff, let's take a step back in time. So what kind of a kid were you? <laughs> uh, I would say I was aloof, pretty socially awkward, uh, wore a lot of sweatpants and khakis, cargo shorts, uh, which, thank God, I grew out of in college. Uh, yeah, then you moved on to double-popped collars and a frat. No, nah, I was triple. <laughs> <laughs> Triple-popped collar and wearing those cowboy hats from American Eagle. I was all over the place. Actually, in my freshman year, I went through a phase where I'd wear, like, a triple-popped collar with, like, a suit jacket and just, like, like alligator shoes. I mean, it was, I think, one time for my, actually, my 18th birthday, freshman year, I wore a white suit to class. Wow. White suit, top to bottom. I was, I, I, was all, I was all over the place. I mean, they say college is when you find yourself, right? You know, and I think my, my fraternity and <laughs> my friends kind of, you know, like straightened me out a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I, some of that stuff was kind of hazed out of me. Okay, well, since I am your sister, I think I can put a little insight into what kind of a kid were you. A little bit of a nerd. Would you agree? A little. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> Um, okay, so tell me more about your nerddom. Well, I mean, I would say my nerddom centered in, in high school was probably mostly around like science fiction and whatnot, because uh, before I'd always been interested in, in, in politics and, and whatnot. I mean, like I said, I literally missed out or 
missed out on the junior prom after party because I wanted to watch this debate on C-SPAN 12 o'clock at night when like, everybody else was like hanging out. But um, I was definitely aligned in the science fiction side, you know, all the Star Wars, Star Trek stuff. Love that. Um, Lord of the Rings? Lord, Lord of the Rings is more college for me, man. I, I don't remember. I think the movies had just come out when I was in high school. I think I was more of a Lord of the Rings fan in college. But um, the... Uh, I, I was focused heavily actually in high school in studying astronomy. I wanted to be an astronomer or an astrophysicist, and I was working on a three-year project in high school where I was trying to find a correlation between the mass of super blast, supermassive black holes and the luminosity of the quasars surrounding them. So, you know, that was a three-year project, and, you know, I was, you know, reading up all the studies to try and, you know, prove that correlation and compete in fairs and whatnot. So that was a very big part of my, my high school childhood. Um, yeah. That's probably the, the center of most of my nerddom in high school. So you mentioned that at Carnegie Mellon you studied political philosophy. How did you decide to study that? Well, um, I think I realized very quickly at Carnegie Mellon that, like, first of all, Carnegie Mellon didn't have an astronomy program. They had a physics program. And, and physics was one of those programs um, where, like, after the first semester, everybody who walked in and thought they were going to become a physicist – the next semester became either a business major or a political science major because they don't play over there. And my math skills were never, ever that strong. Like I never even took pre-calc in high school. So that I wasn't about that life. So I figured, you know, the next best natural thing for me was, was public policy because that's just something I knew like the back of my hand. Um, but I will say it was a bit of a rough transition for me because when I thought of like public policy and political science, I was thinking more of like, the liberal arts program, you know, that's more grounded in the history and, you know, the, the, the reading of the old philosophical writings and whatnot, whereas Carnegie Mellon is very, very quantitative. Mm-hmm. So I had to do two semesters of statistics. I had to take um, cognitive science classes, I had to take economic classes, which in retrospect was absolutely great because now I have a much well-rounded education and I have the ability to, you know, work in a bunch of different fields that I would not have if I just did a generic political science, more, a more generic political science um, program. So the fact that I got to have exposure to like six or seven different fields, I, I thought, you know, or I think now was excellent for me in terms of where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. And you didn't just get your undergrad there, but you also got your graduate degree. Yes. Uh, after I graduated, um, I should also note too that I graduated Carnegie Mellon spring 2009. So it was actually in fall 2008 is when the entire world fell apart, when Bear Stearns Part collapsed. One. Yeah, part one, right? Cause we've gone through like two or three of these things now. But um, yeah, it was fall 2008. It was like three, let's say five months before I was going to graduate is when all the banks started to collapse. And, you know, um, Carnegie Mellon is a really good business school. So I knew quite a few people who had job offers at Morgan Stanley or Bear Stearns. And then they were told a week later, yeah, you don't have a job offer anymore. And everyone was terrified trying to figure out what the heck they were going to do. And I was very fortunate. I applied to a healthcare program basically the day before the, the uh, deadline date. And I got it the last spot into the program. So very fortunate, but uh, I spent two additional years at Carnegie Mellon studying that. Okay. So where are you now? So I'm now in Washington, D.C. I live in Arlington, Virginia, but I work in Washington, D.C. I've been there now for eight years. Oh, my goodness. Eight and a half years. years? Eight and a half years. I moved there in May 2012. And um, since I moved to D.C., I've been uh, working in... Not so much public policy, but I've been, you know, in, in project management. Um, oh, and uh, motivated you to be a project manager. First of all, I was a project manager <laughs> before it was even a thought in your eye. Um, but uh, yeah, no, my first job out of college, you know, I was uh, working at a place called NORC, 
which stands for the National Opinion Research Center, which is affiliated with the University of Chicago. They do a lot of public policy research. Half the time you see polls, you know, they are part of it. But I was doing, um, you know, working on Obamacare implementation, helping states set up their Medicaid program so that they would be eligible for the money that Obamacare, you know, was providing them to, you know, provide expanded healthcare access to people who at that time had not had access to it. So, you know, I was flying to Iowa and like help consulting with Rhode Island and New Jersey and helping design their systems. Um, and then, you know, so I was there for a year. And then from there, I spent two years at Health and Human Services. And I was actually there for the, both the Zika and Ebola crises. So I was actually working in the biological, chemical, radiological, and nuclear space, uh, the policy space, um, doing reporting and analytics. Um, and, you know, actually a lot of the stuff that we've been dealing with, with uh, coronavirus, I actually had exposure to because a lot of the main exposure. Well, not exposure in that way, but exposure in <laughs> a sense of having you know direct, um, let's say, experience in the 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 agency responsible for responding to it. So, perfect example: when I was in that job, we would conduct an annual assessment of the strategic national stockpile, which is the stockpile that contains all the medical countermeasures that um, are stockpiled for responding to any kind of biological or chemical threat. So, like say coronavirus, let's say we had a vaccine for that, there'd be vaccines stockpiled across the entire country. And the idea of strategic national stockpile is that after a declaration of an emergency, those vaccines could be dispensed anywhere in the country within 24 hours. Hmm. Um, so, you know, um, a lot of stuff that's been going on with coronavirus, I have a lot of familiarity with because I, I worked in the agency that was responsible for leading the responses to these kind of things. Um, after that, I worked at a small business called PFS, where I started working for the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, working on a number of projects to improve healthcare for our veterans, um, to improve the type of benefits they get on the education side and pension side. And now I'm at, at ERPI, still at Veterans Affairs, uh, but now I am the knowledge management lead for the White House Hotline, which is a contact center for veterans who don't know where they're trying to go um, at, or they have complaints or they have concerns. And it's a one-stop shop for the veterans to get those kind of complaints or concerns registered because, as folks may remember, under the Obama administration, VA was an absolute shit show. Hospitals were lying about the health care services they are providing to vets and when. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, VA is a massive bureaucracy. It's the second largest department after the Department of Defense. I mean, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of benefits being given out every single year. And the big problem is that instead of it being one massive organization, if you were a veteran, you called one contact center and you gave your social security number and your address and they transferred you to another contact center, they had no idea what information you provided. So what we're doing right now is trying to make VA more of an enterprise. Yeah, so centralized, but we use the word enterprise, so that like mm-hmm. instead of having 100 different contact centers that operate independently of one another, now we're trying to have them basically be more interconnected. The idea being that if you're a veteran, you don't want to, if veterans want to hear, well, we're not that part of the VA, so we don't have that information. No, if you're sure. a vet and you want you know help for your pension or death benefit or burial benefit, all you want to do is get that shit settled. You don't want to have to hear all that stuff. So what mm-hmm. my team or my, my company is doing and, my pro- and the project at large is trying to basically make that – create an enterprise solution to really enhance the customer experience of veterans and their beneficiaries calling in. Um, very long answer. I think I answered more than you actually asked for. But that's basically been my work um, experience in, in D.C. for the last eight years. That is pretty dope. We've got to respect our veterans. Yeah, 100%. Here is the larger question of the entire show and the the way that this podcast was even 
devised? Here's the question. Are you doing what you want to be doing with your life? No. Oh my God. Seriously? No, I mean, look, look at me wrong. I love my job. I do. I actually love my job. I love my company. I love the people I work with. I love the contractors, the clients. It's great. I mean, like, you know, but like if I were to like go back in time, knowing what I know, you know, about life, I would have definitely one paid attention more <laughs> in class. I would have done internships so that I got the prerequisite experience that would allow you to get jobs. Because here's a big problem, right? By the time I graduated from grad school, I had a master's degree from one of the finest universities in the country, but I had no work experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm now in a job market competing against people who may have had five, six, seven, ten years of work experience who lost their job because of the, the economic collapse. And I'm competing against those people. And I was under the mistaken impression that having a master's degree would be like, you know, the, the key to, to life. You'd be great, well, right? Well, that was kind of put in our faces. Oh, 100%. That's been, that's kind of like the, the, the I'll, I won't say BS, I'll say the bullshit that we've all been told in this country. That, you know, if you want to be successful, all you got to do is work hard, go to college, and you're straight. And I think our generation has proved that that's bullshit. Because if you do all that stuff... And you have, you know, a family who could help you pay off your student loans or help you buy your first house, then you're straight. But if you do all those things, work hard, get a degree, and you have $150,000 of student loan debt, and your first job pays you $45,000, well, not only are you not able to pay off your loans, you can't buy a house. It's hard to get married. It's really hard to, like, start that next stage of your life. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is kind of like, you know, bullshit. And I feel like what I basically just had to do was, was make best make the best situation out of what was available in terms of the opportunities for me. Because um, I was speaking as someone who graduated from grad school and it took 13 months for me to find my first job. And, you know, um, mm. being a federal contractor, it's very tough because our, our, our work comes from the fact that we bid for work from the federal government. And, you know, maybe, you know, they decide to give business to another company at the end of your contract and you might lose your job at the end of the contract because of that. Not necessarily because of your performance, but because the federal government decides they want to hire a new business. So, you know, I lost my first job. It took me nine months to find a second job. And then the same thing happened my second job at HHS, where I was there for two and a half years. We found out with a week's notice that we weren't going to win our new contract. Um, and I found out with a week's notice that at the end of the month, not only was I going to be fired, but I would have no health insurance. Um, and I was unemployed for six months after that. Um, and then, you know, I got my new job um, at PFS, which was great. And then my current job is the first time that I willingly, on my own, left my preceding job and found a new job on my own um, without having to basically be forced to find a new job. So at age 32, it was the first time where I actually had some control over my own destiny. Um, so, you know, I don't regret anything because the experiences that I've lived, you know, helped made me the person that I am. Mm -hmm. But if, if I go back from the very beginning and I was able to, like, just redesign my entire life, no, I would do it 100% differently. So... What do you want to be doing? Is this where the LSAT comes in? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, I think what re I, I studied for the LSAT a little bit when I was in grad school because um, I thought, you know, I would make a very fine lawyer. Um, I don't. I agree. I, I think I'm very good at, at, you know, very knowledgeable about, you know, major public policy issues. Any major public policy issue that's being debated about, I would say that I have at least a rudimentary knowledge about. Um, that does not necessarily mean that I'll be an excellent lawyer, but I think, you know, having a law background will be an excellent supplement to my my good public policy knowledge. Um, and I think what really inspired me now recently was the death of, of Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. And I, I think for me, 
I'm not one of those folks who kind of sat on the couch not realizing the impact of, of these kind of things. I knew what would happen, you know, or, or how it would impact us as a whole if, you know, we were to lose RBG or if we were to lose a liberal justice. And, Who's us? Um, us. I mean, it's America as a whole, you know, like our generation when it comes to things like affordable care through the Obamacare, um, Roe v. Wade, um, gay marriage, uh, any of those kind of things. I understood what was at stake if we were to lose a liberal justice and it were to be filled by conservative justice. But I think once RBG actually died, you know, I kind of just like went through a phase of sadness, like deep sadness. And the sadness isn't because I'm one of those folks who wears the RBG notorious, you know, RBG, RBG shirts. I'm not, I'm not one of those folks because I, I don't think we should be like worshiping justices like that. Like, like that's not what our democracy was was structured on. And I understand why people love RBG like that because she was a trailblazer. I mean, you know, she's someone, you know, who I think there's a story about RBG about how she had to wear a baggy sweater when she was pregnant because she didn't want to tell her bosses that she was pregnant because she was afraid she's going to lose her job. Um, and I think there's a case where or, am I, either she did that or she defended someone who did that. But point being, RBG was pretty, like, you know, instrumental in, in fighting that discrimination and basically making it so that women no longer had to hide the fact that they were pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, in order to work in the workplace. So I understand why she is a major um, symbol. Um, and I'm kind of like lost in my train of thought as to how I even got to that point. There. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was asking about how you decided to do the LSAT. Right, thank you. So, because of her but death. but I think I think when she died, it really just like hit my head as to how impactful the law can be, you know, for for everyone. Um, one thing I, I tell people, and it really frustrates me, is that when we see these cases about police brutality or just any kind of major issue that people want to protest about. What really grinds my gears is that a good portion of those people in the streets who are protesting do not vote. Um, they don't know their rights. They don't understand, you know, what the implications are of their decision not to vote. Um, there are people who honestly believe that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the exact same thing. And some of those folks are now complaining about the fact that RBG is going to be replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. It's like people need to vote. But speaking to the law point specifically is that. Republicans, or I'll say conservatives in general, I think have come to the realization that they cannot win a fair election. Um, they benefit Ooh, already. Oh, I'm, I mean, I think it's truth. You know, they already benefit from the fact that if you're a small state like Wyoming with barely half a million people, you get two votes just like California does, which has 30 million people and is the fifth largest economy in the world by itself. And I understand why the founding fathers wanted us to have two senators for every state. I'll point out to folks listening that back then, the Rhode Islands and Delaware's the world had 30,000 people, and and Virginia had 600,000 people, and now Wyoming has 500,000 people, and California has 30 million people. There's a massive discrepancy now in political power. Conservatives only have any remote amount of power because, one, the Senate allows them to, and two, because they go out of their ways to disenfranchise people. And they do it in different ways. They, you know, say, let's have a voter ID Mm. law, which in its own sounds okay. Why shouldn't people just like have, you know, IDs when they vote? Okay, well, then maybe the government should give IDs to everyone so they can vote. Because then what you don't hear is that places like Alabama decide to close the DMVs in, in most of the minority areas in the state. Replacing DMVs with a fucking trailer that drives around those rural black counties so that if a black person happens to see the trailer, then maybe they can get their car filled. So I guess what I'm getting at is just that I'm I'm seeing that the law is being manipulated in a way 
to basically empower minority parties. We're about to have a Supreme Court with six justices with a political philosophy that is represented by a distinct minority of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, the president has made very clear he wants to appoint this justice before the election because he wants them to respond not only to the Affordable Care Act striking down, but to basically put him in office if there's any kind of controversy um, on election day. So I think what I've seen over time and what really hit me at RBG's death is that people are manipulating the law for their own purposes. Um, the law should work for, for everyone. I mean, the, I mean, I feel like there's, there's maybe I'm being a little idealistic, but like when one joins or decides to get into a legal career, they're, they should have a very altruistic mentality. I want to get into law to help the common man, help people who are helpless. And or become a police officer because you want to help the community. Or something like that, yeah. Maybe you want to be a, maybe you want to be a, a public defender. That's another thing, too. Public defenders are massively underfunded. There are not enough public defenders in this country. There are, there are prosecutors who go around prosecuting poor people for whatever crime, and if that poor person had a competent lawyer, they might not be going to jail. And when, when the difference between a person going to jail or not is based off whether or not they have effective representation, I think that is a problem in terms of how our country is structured. And maybe a big part of it is the fact that we don't have enough competent lawyers. I also think we don't have enough black lawyers. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of like going all over the place because I am passionate about public policy in general. I will not pretend to be an expert you know, in the law because um, I'm not. Um, but... I do feel that, you know, with a career in the law, I could contribute to society in a number of ways, whether it's serving as a public defender, whether it's, you know, working for an ACLU type organization where, you know, I'm helping to protect civil liberties against the massive assault we're seeing in this administration. Um, or, you know, if none of those things, worst comes to worst, continue doing kind of like what I'm doing, working under the government or uh, working in the government um, from a law standpoint, you know, office of a general counsel or, you know, maybe office of the White House. I feel like there are a number of things that I could do with a law degree to contribute to society. But I want to you know, get into law because I want to help people. That really is what it comes down to. There are too many people in this country who are underrepresented and people who are punished and, and hurt because they don't have effective legal representation. <laughs> awesome. You know I support you in this endeavor. Yep. So, I mean, big thing now, I mean, I think that the big thing that stopped me from, you know, pursuing this early on is the fact that law school is really cost prohibitive. So I think my mentality is, you know, study for the LSAT. And hey, if two, three years down the line, there's some program or or offer to like pay my way through law school and I have to serve the public for five years or whatever, I will happily hop on that. And my mentality is let's like just get the the studying and the scores out of the way so that if such an opportunity were to arise, I wouldn't have to worry about studying. That's tight. So we're about to wrap because you have to get on the road to drive back to towards our nation's capital. There's one thing that you said that I don't fully understand. Um, You said that Trump is working to get um, this new justice appointed ASAP because he wants to look good if he's elected or he doesn't want, what did you say? No, so so what he basically, his, I think there's a very big misconception because of the Bush versus Gore decision in 2000 that the Supreme Court has a role in certifying elections. That's incorrect. Um, Uh Under our constitution, after election day, each state, using whatever rules they have, um, certifies their election. And then once those election results are certified, the results then goes to Congress. And the first Tuesday or Wednesday in January, whatever it is, then Congress then certifies the election. 
What was controversial in Florida was whether or not a recount should have been held in a certain way. Um, I think, and, and Trump has now basically said that I want to have a nine-person court so that they can address any political controversies that may arrive or election-related controversies that may arrive in November. The so-called controversies are centered around mail-in ballots, which generally don't happen in very large numbers, but because of coronavirus, people are mailing votes in very, very large numbers. Makes sense. Um, there is a political difference as to whether or not um, coronavirus is something that one should worry about when one votes. One political party believes that coronavirus is not a big deal and that if you can go to the store and buy groceries, then you should be able to stand in line and vote. I think we can assume what one what that one party is. Um, the other party believes that you know coronavirus is something that you should worry about, and if especially if you are old or you know you have pre-existing conditions, or honestly, if you're anyone who's concerned about contracting disease, you should be able to vote safely. Whether it's absentee voting early, um, you know, dropping your mail ballots in um, in drop boxes. Um, but Trump- yeah, let me just plug by the way. Sure. Um, Folks out there who are on the younger side of things, I encourage you to um, do training to become an election inspector. I was an election inspector in 2016 for the general election running my poll station. And I mean, you know, fortunately, I have the antibodies and you should do whatever you feel safe and comfortable with. But having done the training recently on the machines that we're going to be using, instead of having the books where you flip through and somebody asks you for your address, they find it, then you have to sign your name. It's on iPads now. It is incredible. And I mean this with no disrespect or ageism, but the people who usually run the poll stations are older. They're 60s, 70s, 80s people who can take the entire day from 5.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. and and do that. So um, I just think it's this is not the election for inefficiency. Um, having done the training, it's you know a little bit more challenging for people to understand how to work an iPad, how to turn it on, how to like do things quickly. So I would just encourage anyone listening, if you're interested in becoming an election inspector, you get paid to do it. Um, I can definitely give you those resources. And, you know, and just to add on that too, to your point about how the, it's usually older folks in the 60s or 70s becoming uh, poll um, workers. Because of their concern about coronavirus, there's actually a shortage of these poll workers across the entire country. So Correct. if you have the time, um, and I will also say this is why Election Day should 100% be a federal holiday. Yes, um, my because, office yes, is making it yes, a day off. Because, you know, if, honestly, if, if you work, a, like a, a lot of folks work multiple jobs, work nine to five jobs, maybe they have to drive across the state in order to get to a job. Those folks don't have the ability to go, you know, go home and, and, and vote. Even though the law says that those people have the right to do so, how many people can afford to take a whole day off to go ahead and vote? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I think that that needs to happen. But again, to the point about the uh, old poll workers, there is a massive shortage of poll workers across the country. So what's happening is, let's say you're a city that normally has 100 voting districts. Some of these cities or states are now just slashing those districts to like 10 or 15. And you might be a city of two, three million people. And if you only have like 10 or 15 voting locations, it becomes way harder for people to find or, or to get to those places. And, you know, a fair solution would be to say, hey, let's allow early voting. Let's allow mail voting. And a lot of states do that. But if you're a state like Texas, they don't want that. They don't care about that. And there's one reason for that, because the people who would benefit from that would generally vote Democratic um, and, and that really is the, you know, the encouraging factor here for why Trump and, you know, his minions in Congress are acting the way they are. Because if we're having an honest, open, free election, let's say in a theoretical world, every single person had a voter ID, they could go in and vote, everyone voted, we would not have Republicans in power 
except maybe in the Senate, really ever. Um, and the reason why they get to have like the representation they have is because they manipulate our, our institutions to get the result they want. Wisconsin might I mean, be look at the Supreme, the Supreme, well, Supreme Court, Court is a perfect example of that. I mean, you know, if, you know, if these guys were the just, audacity, yes, you know, if these guys were just fucking honest, she should have said, you know what, the Constitution gives the Senate the right to provide advice and consent to a justice. Obama nominated Merrick Garland. We didn't like him. That's why we didn't vote for him. If Mitch McConnell said that, we would have been angry, but it would have been intellectually honest. Instead, they invented a brand new rule. We cannot vote on a nominee the same year of the election, nine fucking months before Election Day. People are voting right now. One million people have already cast their ballots. We are 35 days away from Election Day. And in the hypocritical day rule they created for the guy who just happened to be the first black president, you know, I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. Now they're saying, well, it's actually what we meant to say was we can have the vote in the final year if we're all part of the same political party. Well, why didn't you say that in 2016? Just be honest. This is about power. Just be honest and say the Constitution gives us this right. We don't have to prove a damn thing. And we didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Just, that's, that's all they had to say. But they invented a brand new rule in 2016. They're creating a brand new rule now. And I think Democrats like Biden are going to be soft and just basically shrug their shoulders and just dig it. I say, for me, add six seats to the Supreme Court, get rid of the filibuster, legislate Roe v. Wade into law so there's no longer something that we have to argue about. I mean, we need to start legislate a a Voting Rights Act, which takes away all these differences that the states have in terms of their ability to count votes when you can vote because the Constitution does give Congress the right to regulate federal law. If they don't, then by default, the states can. But Congress has the right to create one uniform law that everyone has to follow for federal elections. Whatever reason, well, the reason is because of the filibuster. Um, and, you know, that allows 25%, 20% of the population to block any legislation they don't like. Um, and I'm sorry, the founding fathers, folks, did not want that. Because if the founding, if, if, if they knew that 20% of the population could block any law that they did not like, the Constitution would not have been approved. It's really, really important that people understand that. Um, don't bind into this nonsense that the founding fathers wanted the Senate to be able to do that. Because at no point in the Federalist Papers or any you know document written by the founding fathers did anyone ever say that a distinct minority of the population should be able to block legislation. The reason, the reason why the Senate is designed the way it is is specifically to give that kind of power to small states. But they didn't say... Let's give tiny-ass states the same representation as the big states and then give them a second way to fuck everyone over if they decide that, well, I don't know, black folks shouldn't vote or that, you know, schools should be be desegregated. I mean, some of these things would never happen if it wasn't for, you know, a relatively impartial judiciary, you know, legislating essentially in, 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 you know, uh, place of Congress. But now we're going all over the place, as I'm, I'm prone to do. Um, <laughs> we're way off from the original subject. But, like, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about good. this stuff. I think that's why I'm, I'm a natural fit to get into law. And, I, you know, I think if, if I can study, you know, Freddie Elsack, get into a law degree, I think I can make a, a very great contribution to the country, um, whether it's working for the government, whether it's working for, for underserved, underprivileged people. I think I can make that contribution. But, I mean, you know, as we're wrapping up, if I really can make any point, folks, this is the big point it does not fucking matter if you march in the streets if you do not cast a ballot do you know why the people if nothing has changed in louisiana 
or not Louisiana, in Louisville, mm-hmm. or in Milwaukee, or in any place. Black folks are getting shot all the time. We have millions in the streets. Do you know why no one gives a shit in terms of our elected officials? Because the people who are elected into power or are in power right now were not put in office by the people who are in the streets. If you want your politicians to give a shit about the fact that you're drowning in student debt, then vote. Mm-hmm. If you want people to give a shit about the fact that you're making twice as much money as your parents were at your age, but you still can't afford a house for 10 years, then you have to vote. Like, it's great that we have folks like AOC, you know, in power, but we need more people like her. Not necessarily because of her political philosophy, but because she's of our generation. She understands what, what, what it's like to have a parent who dies and then you're in a single income family and then you as a child have to maybe drop out of college or do pick up jobs in college to help pay bills for your family. You know, the older generations don't really have to deal with that because fortunately for them, after World War II, we decided it was a good idea to spend billions of dollars building highways and building schools, building oh homes, gosh. doing all of these things in the 50s that no one called socialism during the height of, of the Cold War. When we were literally scared of, of nuclear war with the Soviet Union, we had no problem with socialism, building schools, building homes. But now, oh shit, everyone is on their own. Us millennials, we're poor because we eat too much fucking avocado, avocado bread, toast. avocado toast. That's why we're struggling, avocado toast. Not because our government isn't doing jack shit to help us out. And now we have the possibility of a Supreme Court who a week after Election Day will be deciding whether or not Obamacare will stay. During a pandemic, you guys, you have to vote. Florida was decided by 527 votes in 2000. And it's not just it's not just the national election, folks. It's your prosecutors. Mm-hmm. F- Philadelphia right now has a prosecutor, uh, Larry Krasner, I believe it. I believe his name is who came into power, basically saying we're not going to be throwing people in jail for smoking marijuana. We're going to hold policemen accountable. And it's 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 a very very different experience in Philadelphia right now. Same thing in places like St. Louis. Voting for prosecutors, you know, who are the people who probably have the most direct day to day influence on your lives. You have to vote for your mayors. You have to vote for your county executives. You have to vote for your state legislators. Too many of you guys out there are, are apathetic. And, you know, I, I, hate, I hate to be like sound like the old grandpa dude, but I know too many people who are on the streets and then they're not going to vote. And then when, when I'll, I'll, I'm, let me tell you all something, right? And I'm, I really want to make sure you all understand what this man is doing. How many of you guys are aware that your taxpayer dollars are being used to do forced mastectomies on migrant women who are locked up down the border. Okay, we thought that locking up those those children from Central America were the worst of it. No, there are women who also immigrated into the United States. You want to say illegally, whatever, whatever term you want to use. But right now they're in jail cells, and they were given medication against their will, and they literally removed their uteruses against their will. The fact that this isn't on the news is a sign of how much we're gaslit. Because at any given day, we're concerned about some crazy shit that Trump says or, or you know, coronavirus or, or whatnot. Some of these things are justified. Some of these things are not. But the point is, is that there are some Nazi-level crimes going on right now. And I will say it's similar to Nazis because outside of, of, of the, um, the shit that happened in, in Tuskegee, I can't think of any other example of, of, of a nation doing forced surgeries on people without informed consent. You're not telling these women what you're doing. Women are having things like flus or, or, or whatever disease. They go into the doctor and they remove your uterus. Pay attention, people. 
You are enabling this by staying home. If you think there's no difference between Joe Biden because Joe Biden wrote the crime bill, guess what, folks? 90% of the black folks in Congress voted for the crime bill. Most of the big city mayors voted for the crime bill. Most, you know, people our age, we weren't alive in the 80s and 90s when things were really, really bad. But crime was so bad that everybody in this country thought the best solution was to throw every motherfucker in jail. Now we know 20, 30 years there are bad externalities to that approach. But let's not punish Joe Biden for being the person who wrote the law. Because when Joe Biden wrote his first version of the law, it passed the Senate. I think it was either 95 to 5 or 97 to 3. Let's let's be critical of him. Let's yell at him. You have every right to be skeptical of him. But let's not punish him for something that was passed by very, very large numbers and had widespread support in this country. If you think there's not a difference between someone like Joe Biden, who I think will be as generic of a Democrat as there is, and someone like Donald Trump, who is a borderline fascist, who who is basically ignoring the state of California as they go through historic you know, forest fires simply because people don't vote for him, which, side note, is a dumb argument because California has more Republicans than any other state in the country because they have 30 million people. I mean, I don't know what else will it take. I always compare this election to people who complain about the two candidates. So I said, did you see that South Park episode where you have to pick between a giant douche and a huge turd? Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes those are the choices you have got to make a choice. Yep. Make a choice, people. I mean, honestly, I'm not even saying you have to vote for Trump or Biden. If you want to vote third party, I mean, I, I think you're nuts, but that's your constitutional <laughs> right. But you should go vote. <laughs> vote third party for president if you want to, but vote for your prosecutors, vote for your state legislators. Because honestly, when, when we hear about these, these, these crimes, there are borderline war crimes, we're watching police officers ripping masks off people's faces and then spraying mace at them at point blank range. I'm sorry, you know, like we're all culpable in this because this is happening in our name. Our taxpayers, our, our taxpayer dollars are funding this. So you can't sit on your ass and, and do nothing. Or, well, you can, you know, you can sit on your ass or you can march and make noise. Just don't be surprised if we tell you to shut the fuck up. We're not paying attention to you because people right now are bleeding in the streets. I'm watching rubber bullets being fired at people's faces from point blank range. I'm watching cops literally firing ordinance at the media for doing nothing but filming the cops doing illegal stuff. I watched a video on Thursday of a police officer on Seattle who took his bike and rode it over the neck of a protester <gasps> lying down on the ground. Oh, yeah. It's on video. It's Seattle. Every single day we see these kind of things happening. If you were that apathetic to that, then God bless your soul. Just make sure you keep your mouth fucking shut when the next war crime happens. Peace out. Oh, my God. And that is, uh, that's my brother, guys. Passioned. I hear you. I respect it. I feel it. Yep. Um, if this was a year ago, I wouldn't be as passionate. But election day is 35 days, folks. States, just make sure you go online. You understand where and how to register to vote. If you can register to vote now, do it. If you can vote early, do it. I voted on Thursday. Very quick, very easy. Do not wait until election day to vote because these people will find a way to screw you over. Cast your ballot. Don't sit on your ass, do nothing, and then bitch about it later. Go out and vote now, please. He said please. Well, thank you, brother. I was going to ask you what do you take away from this conversation, but I think, I think we've got it. <laughs> vote. <laughs> Jesus, just go out and vote. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I think this was great. Um, I hope people hear it. 
Um, I hope that people feel like they have the tools if in case they have a, a person in their life who doesn't feel like their vote counts. Every vote counts. Um, guys, it's been a rough year. Let's just all do our civic duties and our responsibilities and, and make our voice heard. And if you feel, if you just happen to be in a place of privilege where your life isn't affected by the monstrosities of the day to day, think about, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know me, you probably know my brother. Think about us <laughs> and our families and the extensions of us. Um, it really sucks folks to walk down the street or to go jogging down the street and people are terrified you're going to rob them. And it's also very terrifying to walk past a cop and not know if that cop's having a bad day and it's going to shoot you. You know, you know, people, a lot of folks didn't think this stuff was real until we had, you know, like camera phones basically right. explaining exactly what we've been saying for decades. Please take this shit seriously. And with that, clink, I got to get up out of here. Yes, you do. That is my brother indeed. And that was episode one. Thank you so much for listening. So many people to thank for getting the show off the ground. Katie Lou, a.k.a. K.L. Ingraham, Trevor, a.k.a. Frankie Goldburn, Eric Dietz, David Ray, and everyone else who encouraged this personal project along the way. If you have friends, family members, colleagues who you think would love this episode, this podcast, please subscribe, share, leave a comment. And remember, set a goal, take some steps, and get after it. Stay bullish, y'all. Until next time. It's Bullish with Toro. Bye.